stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with us on the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Really, really happy to be back. Greg Nicholson, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm actually really excited about today's show. We're doing something a little bit different, so we'll see how it pans out. I love that you jumped right into it. I think, I think, yeah, we're with, you know, seven past, so it's, you know, it's worth just jumping into. Now, you and I have been talking a bit over the past couple of weeks, and it, and it feels like the country is going through a transition. Um, the constant struggle that we have as a country of, 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 of trying to come to terms with the past and its impact on the present and then how to reconcile this dark, this dark past with, with where we're trying to go. And the, and the sort of bold aims of equality that we want for the whole country and for everyone. But when you follow the national narrative and the news cycle, it can be quite schizophrenic. I mean, there's moments of excitement and inspiration and there's great hope. And there's also times of panic and confusion and it feels like, you know, we're moving backwards. One thing that I'm always struck by is this, is this feeling that across the divides of race and class and ideologies is that it's just so hard to connect. It feels like our lived realities are just so different and that there's almost no point when we can really at least have a basic understanding of each other. And often when we when we do connect across these divides, it just feels like we're screaming at each other. When there's these outrage and racist outbursts and so on, it just feels like we're shouting. No one's actually trying to to hear and understand the point of view of anybody else. So Greg and I have been talking a lot about this and, and the individual experience and how on earth do we acknowledge each other's humanity in such, in, in, you know, in, in such a situation, and we're all so different, and our lived realities are so different, and we're just not listening. And, w- and we followed this conversation and, and talked a bit about storytelling, um, which, in, which is ideally a space where somebody speaks and other people are listening, genuinely listening. So today, that's what we'll be talking about, about storytelling. And to do this, we'll be focusing on an initiative called Imbaula, is inspired by the African tradition of storytelling, ideally around an open fire, thus Imbaula. And this, this uh, initiative aims to preserve the fading art of storytelling and encouraging literacy too. It happens once a month right here in Johannesburg, and you know we've attended a couple and I can tell you it's incredible. We will be joined by Spiro Mpie, who will be walking in any second now, um, and, and we'll tell you a whole lot about him and, and where he comes from and, and, and what's behind this initiative. So to get started, we'd just like to jump into one of the stories. Um, this one in particular is by an individual called Tiger Maremela, and he speaks about dating um, and the impact of his mental health on dating and that sort of interaction and how to take care of yourself while sort of in the in dating and being sexually active. So let's jump right into it. As per usual, messed up on actually what to press, but Greg has... Corrected me as he always does. What I would do without him, only the Lord knows. My story for tonight is going to be talking about what happens when your whole phase is activated at the same time as a depressive episode. Um, so I'm at, I'm in the middle of an aisle in pick and pay. Um, to be honest, it was pick and pay liquor. They had a sale. They had a sale on Smirnoff 1818, and I thought it's 10 a.m. It's a Tuesday. Or, like, let me do something about it. Um, 
I'm in the middle of an aisle trying to pick out a flavor that I want to get drunk off of, and somebody taps me on the shoulder and asks me to pass them a bottle. So I pass them the bottle, I turn over, and he compliments me on my hair. And I'm just like, oh, dope, you're cute. Um, He later introduces himself, and for the purposes of the story, I will call him Cucumber. So we go back and forth. We go back and forth complimenting each other from hair to shoes to pants until he eventually steps back and says, your lips, eh? Um, You look like a really great kisser. I didn't see him for another two weeks until he added me on Facebook and it was school holidays. I had nothing to do. So I was just like, okay, fine. You're cute. Let me add you on Facebook. We talked for a few hours. A few hours later, he asked for my number. We had a four-hour phone call. But the whole time, I keep seeing red flags, right? Um, He tells me about his super successful catering company. And at one point, he tells me how his ex-girlfriend is now pregnant with his best friend's child. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, babes, why are you telling me all this information? I really don't need this. And I'm seeing all these red flags, but I'm just like, oh, it's vac and it's cute. I have nothing better else to do. So we keep chatting. I see him a week later when I was back at the university currently known as Rhodes, and we go out on a date. It was maybe one of the worst dates I've ever been on. I spent most of it calling him out on his fucky politics or directing him to a piece of literature that would decolonize the way he thought of gender or sexuality. And it was really annoying, and I knew I I had no reason to be there, but he was so damn attractive. We went out on a second date, which pretty much went the same way as the first date. I was calling him out, I was being annoyed... I was getting the most expensive meal because he was paying for it. And the whole time I thought, you are literally the most boring person I've ever met, but you are so damn attractive. When we met, it was around the same time when we had load shedding in Gramstown, and it was super bad. For about two, three hours, we had no electricity. So for about two, three weeks, the only time I saw him was when the power was out. And to be honest, to be honest, to be honest, I'm a hoe, so I did not mind. I did not mind the fact that the only time I saw him was when the power lights were off. But also, at the same time that I met him, I was going through a very intense slump in my life. I had no idea what was going on. I was barely going to lectures, barely going out to eat, barely showering, I was getting emails that like my DP would get taken away. Um, and for people who don't know what a DP is, but it's basically the thing that lets you write the exam. And my lecturers were saying, if you, babes, if you don't start coming to lectures, you're going to lose it. And I was just like, oh, I don't care. I have no reason why I don't care. And the only reason I was leaving the house was because of this very attractive boy. So this one night, the power is off, we're lying in bed, we have just finished doing the things that make the sex to be done. It was very nice. But, okay, I'll be honest, it was decent, okay? Out of, scale of 1 to 10, it was a 5 or a 6. 
But we're lying in bed and he asked me, so how are you doing? But how are you really doing? So I go on to tell him about my family and about school. And I end up on this long monologue about how I was pretty sure I was depressed, but I had no, I couldn't tell because the counseling center was closed and the psychology clinic was too busy, but I'd gone into Google, which is like my favorite thing ever, even though I hate it. But I was just like, babes, I'm pretty sure I'm depressed. And like, these are all the symptoms and I haven't been to lectures. I haven't been showering except for you. There was all these things happening and he sits up and he looks at me and he says, I am so tired of these rich kids that are sad and sulking around and thinking that they are depressed and have anxiety. Um, you just had to snap out of it. I have never gotten dressed that quickly in my life. I do not remember when that depressive episode ended or when I felt like I was finally coming back into myself. But I do remember thinking that when you are in a depressive episode or when you are depressed, self-love and self-care isn't a thing that you think about too often, right? And I think we preach about this all the time, that if you your mental health isn't on par, then, you know, take some time out and take care of yourself. But we always look at it as a prevention, as in go exercise in order to prevent getting depressed. And what I think we need to start talking about is how Self-care and self-love is as important as medication. But at that point, when I was hoeing around with a boy, that was silly. A boy that was boring and interesting, but was still cute, and we were having decent sex. I wasn't really taking care of myself, right? I was doing it because I was young and fun, and I had nothing else better to do. But what I really started thinking about was, we don't really take care of ourselves when we're depressed. And what I also thought about was that the moment that your whole phase starts to compromise your life and your politics and your energies, that's when you know you need to stop. So the moment when you're hoeing around and it's fun and you're at Great Dane, it's lit, you're getting bored drinks, but these people that you keep meeting, they keep messing with your politics or your energies or your vibes. That's when you know that you need to actually reconsider your life. And I don't know what happened with Cucumber. I saw him a few weeks ago outside of Great Dane. He started, he tried to chat with me. Um, I was obviously uninterested. But... I think of all the things that have happened, what I realized with Cucumber was that we need to start taking care of ourselves even when we think we're having a great time, especially when you're having a great time. Take a step back and think, is this what I really want to be doing? Am I doing it because I really want to or because everything else in my life is fucking around? Because often when you're depressed, you don't give a shit. You don't care. You're just like, I'm about to lose my degree or my job or my DP, but I don't care because I'm sad and I'm in bed and I'm watching French foreign films on the internet. But that is that moment. That is that moment when you need to step back and be like, considering everything that is going on, am I okay? 
Am I still healthy? Are my politics still secure? Am I vibing with the people that I want to be actively contributing in my life? You're back with us on the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. As mentioned, today we're talking about storytelling. So it's just us sharing really interesting story from the events that we've been talking about or the initiative rather called Imbaula. We're joined by the founder and director of Random Window, which is the initiative, uh, which I mean, which is the company behind the initiative Imbaula. Spiu MPA, who spent two decades in the media working with some of the country's best known publications. Most recently launched Noted Man, an online culture and lifestyle platform. An entrepreneur, writer, and editor. Clearly a very busy man. Spiwe, thanks for joining us. Now, Spiwe, I'm curious what your sort of personal relationship with storytelling is as you, as we arrive as this, this, this initiative on Bola that you've started is, is storytelling and as this idea of allowing people to share their stories. Is that something important to you? It is. So storytelling for me, I suppose, I, I look at it in two ways. Um, the one, it was, it, it was always innate in me, but I was, I was a painfully shy child. And although I saw as a writer, so I developed in, into a writer quite early. And, and of course, as a writer, you are, you know, you, you are an observer. You observe life, you observe people, you observe how people interact and so on, and you form stories from that. And so I was always writing little short stories, literally terrible, terrible short stories, <laughs> and even worse poetry. But yeah, <laughs> oh, um, we want to hear, hear some of that for sure. And um, so I suppose you know the, the idea of getting up on stage for a shy child and talking. I mean, one of the most frightening things for me growing up was doing the oral in class. Uh-huh. Where you had to you know talk about your holiday or you know the things that really. Um, inspire you the most, or whatever the case, or whatever the topic might have been. And, you know, I used to be, I used to have sleepless nights and hands clammy standing there. And, um, yeah, but I guess it was, uh, part of me being an introvert as well. And I kind of had to learn to get that out of me and getting up on stage and doing all sorts of things. So, you know, when I started being an entrepreneur, I was, at some point, I was managing, um, comedians and they didn't have an MC for a show. So I had to get up there and, you know, be the MC. Not very funny, but, you know, <laughs> the show had to keep moving. So, you know, I was kind of forced onto the stage and it really helped me with my shyness and so on. And parallel to that, my career was blossoming as a writer. Um, I was writing for different publications and moving from one to the other and kind of getting on in the media and became, you know, um, manager in, in the newsroom and became editor and so on. So, and storytelling stayed with me right through. And the idea of Mbaula, you know, had been simmering for a very long time. I admired people like the Nam, uh, Dr. Dinam Shope, who, you know, has been, um, true icon in the real sense of the word. I mean, that word is kind of thrown about quite quite a lot, but she is a true icon and I uh, met her recently and she's promised to be on Mbaula <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> soon enough. Um, well, you, you guys have got the exclusive. We more than... Yeah, here for, <laughs> more or less c- uh, confirmed her for July, so... Um, She's gonna be, she's gonna be on our stage pretty, very soon. But yeah, I mean, inspired by, by such people, inspired by all sorts of different writers, um, you know, that I keep, even now to this day, keep discovering, keep discovering new. And, and of course, once I started thinking about how we could translate this very, you know, um, African idea of storytelling around the fire, which is where the Mbaola concept comes from. Um, you know, I started doing research and seeing how people approach storytelling around the world and 
the idea or the format then started coming together um mm. you know taking things that we like from from what, hap- what what happens around the world and kind of making it our own and this was the um, i think our first show was in 2014 december no no october 2014 did you grow up in a household where sort of stories were told you know your parents your uncle your siblings is that one of your so what are your sort of early memories around storytelling sure. so for a very long time i was an only child um my sister and i are about nine years apart so it was really so the, the the people i played with growing up you know were other kids and you didn't have a big family although i mean my my father's family is quite big but they were they were all in Gauteng and we grew up in the eastern cape so my siblings or my defective siblings then would be friends and you know i have friends who have been friends with since then who are great storyteller who are great storytellers and you know i was i was i was always the one to take them in you know in in that kind of observational mode i would kind of sit there and like enthralled Uh by you know people who so among my friends we have people who are now in radio people who are comedians and actors and so on so they were always kind of the natural extroverts and i was always the one who was reserved but you know i was i would kind of sit there enthralled and listening to these stories and there'll be countless tall tales mostly you know (laughs) but stories nonetheless and entertaining nonetheless um and my uncle, so my eldest uncle on my dad's side, he's, you know, he's another one we're trying to get onto the stage because he's a consummate um, storyteller. So they have a big family, you know, I've got about six uncles, uh, aunt, and they've got kids and, you know, and our generation then, we've also got our own kids. So, so usually like huge gatherings at a farm out in, um, near the cradle of humankind and whenever we gathered there around Christmas time, it's just story after story after story. Um, so yeah, there's, I mean, there, there was a lot of that. So with, um, family as well as, as friends and mm. then encountering stories, you know, through books and through film and, and, and all sorts of other areas. I think as a, as a child, watching other sort of orators, story, you know, storytellers, everyone who becomes the center of attention, mm. when you're too shy to be that guy at that stage, it even, does it even sort of, uh, build up sort of the importance and allure of, of storytelling in your head as you're watching someone sort of like, hold a crowd or, you know, a little audience sort of, you know, captive. Definitely. I mean, that, that quality I hold in, I hold in very high regard, you know, people who can, who can handle a room, who can, you know, who kind of walk in and they project this thing that draws you towards them. And then once they speak and they, you know, and then they take you through a story, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a real skill. Some people have it innately. Some people learn it over, over years. Um, at Mbaula, we've seen lots of natural storytellers, but we've also seen lots of people who have actually had to work at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and people go there for different reasons. You know, it's, um, for some, it's a release for some, it's, um, you know, uh, it's, it's really about an idea. Um, and for some, it's about um, making sense of where they got to, you know, where they are um, in, in many different ways. So whether it's about identity or, you know, it's, re- it's, a, it's about, uh, you know, their sexuality. Mm-hmm. When it's just a funny story about, you know, Zwaibala, um telling a story about his early days <laughs> as a... Um, as a as, as a conductor yeah, for for a choir, you know, so it could be it could be literally anything. But I think what 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 the common thread is essentially um, is really about people just getting stuff off their chest. 
I mean, having attended, I really, I really felt that uh, that a lot of people felt they wanted to tell their truth or their there was an onus. I'm not sure if that's in the brief, but they felt there's been an onus of saying this is sort of my this mm. is my journey. And I'm curious about what you think about that or what that means for the on, on a more national scale. Um, Greg was doing some research before, and you, you know, as he quoted before, as saying as during the transition from the apartheid regime, there was no mass therapy session. Yeah. Um, and, and do you think there's, there's, that there's a form of therapy through the storytelling? And do you think perhaps that, that, that there's something in there as to how the, the nation can heal from some of the things we've been through? Most definitely. I think that, you know, that's one of the, the, the big reasons or the most, one of the most paramount reasons behind starting this. I mean, I truly believe in, in therapy and I truly believe that one of the, um, the interventions as a nation that should should have taken um, that should have occurred, along with the TRC and many other interventions, is you know wholesale, wholesale um, large scale therapy. You know we should have a therapy room or center in every corner. I think so. The, then Mbaula becomes that um, that outlet. You know people come there and they bring their friends, they bring their family. Obviously people bring their grandmothers to hear their stories um, because sometimes there are things that. You know, within your family, you can't say, but, you know, if you, if you say it in a particular way on stage and the people that you love that you've been trying to get through to, um, in a more intimate way, um, can have access to those thoughts, to that emotion. Um, and so I've seen many, you know, beautiful kind of backstories to people's stories, um, on Imbaula. Um, you know, which is why when we look at, you know, the format, um, in, in its current state, we really feel that we need to expand it. Um, there, there are ideas that are kind of floating around about expansion, about looking at how. I mean, the, the one thing is that we don't we don't censor people's stories. We don't we don't vet the stories. If people feel like telling us what they're going to talk about and they need pointers or they want to bounce ideas off, great, we do that. But ultimately, you know, it's your truth. The only the only condition that we and we. <laughs> You know, it, it it never really works, as Kingsley will attest. We we you know we we put a ten minute time limit. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> uh, but it never quite works with you know with with some people. But I guess you know when 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 people are on that stage, they you know they're in a zone, they're in their own world, and you kind of you let people um, you know offload the way that they want to. On that note, I love we could jump into another story. Great. Um, this one in particular is by. Nefertari Galeta, and she speaks about growing up, and she and and her parents uh, or her father, I think, had been in exile, and married across racial lines, and it's really just about sort of her journey being a product of this and trying to live her sort of born free experience in the in the context of that. So I'll just be playing that right now. Just it's a bit weird being here after so many years, um, but man, my story is about uh, basically forgiveness and all that I've been through and how I realized that forgiveness is everything. It's, okay. it actually, it's the only thing you really have control over in your life. And as much as I'm this young, I won't even say my age, um, and the limited life experiences that I've had as a young black female in this country, I think my family gets the most credit for for me being able to forgive. I mean, I remember my dad telling me stories about how he was in exile for almost 30 years and having to leave South Africa around my age, about 19, 20 years old, and not 
ever thinking if he's ever going to come back, if he's going to see his parents again. And it was insane. Like, I mean, how do you, how do you do that? And it just made me reflect on my own life and like the things that I've been through with my mom, who's now a single parent and my dad, that's no longer around and making sense of this world around me. And, um, so basically my dad, um, he passed away about six years ago and it was a very traumatic experience for me because he was the closest thing I had to the arts, to, to a friend. And when he left, I think he took a big part of me with him and it was very hard to cope because I was so young and, my parent, my parent, my parents, my parents are, were quite the rebels back in the day. So my mom is Indian and my dad is, he's black. So <laughs> my mom comes from this very staunch, strict, conservative background where she was the rebel kid strangling her lecturers at UWC for their racist comments. <laughs> and my dad was just a man who loved music and loved life and they met and procreated and here we are. Um, and my mom was always the one who pushed me. But I feel like it's as though she pushed me because life didn't afford her the same things that she could have wanted for herself. So my dad was always my savior. So my mom would be like, well, you need to be an engineer. You know, the Indian side talking. You have to be an accountant. You know, someone important. My dad is like, no, man, come on. Go teach people how to scuba dive in Bali. Like, love your life. And when he passed away, I remember feeling so alone. And prior to being a digital marketer and entering this crazy advertising industry that I'm about to get into... I used to be an artist and I used to sit with my dad and he would like do his compositions on the piano and, you know, talk to all these guys, Abu Brahuma Sikela and all these guys and I'd be there drawing and when he passed away, I, I couldn't, I, I haven't picked up a pen in like six years. I, I can't, like it, it feels, it's not the same. It feels not even wrong. It just feels like, I don't have that connection anymore. But I think now that I'm getting a bit older and I'm starting to self-regulate a bit more and uh, think about things before I actually do them, I've been thinking about forgiveness a lot and what my dad has taught me, especially considering that apartheid took a huge chunk of his life and claimed his homestead that he called home for so many years. And he was never angry. I mean, sure, he, he was upset, you know, it was wrong, whatever, but I never him, I never remember him being mad. I remember him always telling me about the good things about this country and everything that it has to offer. And I mean, even in his songs and everything that he did, it's just like it more, more of it was more about longing and lament, I think, for home that he lost for so many years. And then I think after that, it also takes me back to my grandmom, who is Griqua. I don't know if you guys know Griqua, the Griqua tribe. So they're in the trans sky. And I mean, she, just like my mom, married an Indian man. And they were the only mixed race uh, family in the small Durban town for 
a long time, but I never hear her speaking about anything in, in a negative light, but it's, it's just astounding. And I just think about how it's aided me in, in forgiving other people, you know, like how arts and culture has, has helped me to forgive myself for a lot of things, former friends, current lovers, bugs that fly in my house. Um, <laughs> and man, you, you can't hold things in your heart. It's, you can't. I mean, with everything going on and the internet and Twitter being so buck wild the way it is, you, you can't let these things get to you and get the better of you. And I just think that now as I stand here in front of all of you, it's, it's just such a revelation that I'm, I've been having these last few weeks about, uh, forgiveness and forgiving people. And I mean, if an unforgiving heart is just, you know, fertile soil for resentment and bitterness to grow, you know, and I've realized if I don't forgive, then what's the point of being here, you know? And I mean, being in the digital marketing space as well, dealing with people's tweets and just the internet landscape alone, it's a very unforgiving world. People have no chill. They will just call you out and tell you like it is and you just have to respond as politely as possible even though you're swearing deep down in your head. But yeah, like it's it's been interesting and yeah, forgiveness. Thank you. You're with us on the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. That was a story we were sharing from Nefertari Galeta um, as we spend this hour just talking about storytelling um, and this, this, this perhaps power that can come from somebody just telling their truth. Um, just honestly, no posturing and just, just telling their story. And, and perhaps there's something in there about, about how we can, as a country, connect and understand each other better across these giant divides. And that's what I was thinking. So I was just wondering, so it seems like today, or some people might argue that you know, humanity and humankind and communities were connected more than ever before. You know, I've got social media. Anyone can start their own blog. Well, in theory, um, <laughs> you can, you know, there's so many different ways of, of connecting and speaking to each other these days, but still, I think there's a personal feeling for a lot of people and studies done showing that there's sort of disconnectedness. These mm-hmm. sort of tools of technology also lead to separateness and feelings of isolation. But it seems like with Imbawula, there's something important about having it in person. Um, so w- what do you think it means about sort of getting a bunch of people in a room to listen to someone share their experiences and just allowing them in person to express who they are? Mm. So, I mean, the, the irony of Mbaula is, um, part of its spirit is about, you know, just, uh, disengaging with the digital world and being present. Um, you know, a lot of times we're not present to sit in meetings, we're looking at a phone, um, you know, someone's on their laptop in the meeting answering a, a mail while someone else is presenting, you know, something completely different. So we're constantly, you know, connected to, to this, um, to this virtual world. And I mean, the irony then is, you know, people come to Mbaula to kind of disconnect from all of that. But, you know, we use that connected world to get people there. Right? <laughs> you know, our, um, you know, our, our marketing is, is primarily digital, but, I think the, it is a different, you know, there's a different, uh, sense, um, when, when you are there, you know, you, what, what, 
the, the, the interesting thing is that when you look at Twitter activity during Mbaola, mm. you know, it's, it's hardly there. And unless, unless, unless someone on stage is one of the cool kids and then, you know, all the Twitter kids are there and they, and they start tweeting away. But, you know, it's, it's usually very quiet on Twitter. Um, but when then what you see the next day is kind of pictures being posted, um, you know, on Instagram and so on. And, you know, you see a lot of that interaction then there. So for me, it says that, you know, people are really engaged. People are there. People are present. People are taking in the stories. People are pondering. Um, you know, you can, you can always tell what the mood was like from the last story when we take a break in the middle, you know, when, if, if the, if the chatter is a bit heightened or it's a little bit subdued, if it was a sad story, you know, people are kind of talking and exploring their own ideas, exploring, mm. um, what they could take away from the story. So if someone's telling a story about their grandmother, you know, you find that people outside talking about their own grandmothers mm. and how, you know, how, uh, how uncanny the story was because they can apply it to their own life. So it's, it's really, really, you know, a human connection on a very kind of basic, basic level. We're talking about pain and division and some of the scars of the past before. And it seems that live storytelling can do something that perhaps writing cannot. Even the writing and, and other forms of sharing information can do its own sort of, sort of things. There seems to be such an emotional impact of live oral storytelling. It is. I think it's, you know, it's in someone's voice. Um, it's in the cadence, in the speech, it's in the, um, body language. You know, it's in pauses in the right places or uncomfortable pauses in the wrong places. All of that comes together on a very kind of visceral level, um, primal level really, because we can all relate to those, to those emotions. Um, you know, at, at, at times, you know, it gets so quiet in there where, you know, usually, you know, you hear glasses clinking, people mm. kind of mm. murmurs, but sometimes it's just silent and, you know, there's just one person on stage and they, quite vulnerable in that moment but everyone is in there with them and everyone is rooting for them you know there's there's never a sense of you know the person on stage is an underdog is an underdog and no one is on their side you know um i'm, I'm curious about i mentioned this a bit before this this idea of the truth and i, I attended one geez i'm not sure a couple of shows ago and you were introducing somebody and i think i think you also got a bit caught up in the moment mm-hmm. it might have been when jacob zuma had this case with the concord i think it may have been that week and you and you mentioned something about how there's just there's there's just so little truth in the country. I think you might have said, mm-hmm. and you said the only we don't give too many briefs to people before they speak. But one thing we do hope for and expect is that there's no there's no hiding on here. There's that you bring your truth here. And I, I remember being so touched. And I, I it's something I've been thinking about since then. What what is this idea of somebody's truth? What is is that something you think about? Something you hope for? What is that? Sort of yeah, essence I that think, you're going for. I think we need, I mean, speaking to a lot of people, they need spaces where they can just be themselves, where, you know, it, it's a non-judgmental space. Um, it's a space where you can shock people unexpectedly and it's cool, you know, um, because, you know, I've got my own dirty linen <laughs> out there. But I think that, you know, that the, the point about truth is that there's so much of it that is lacking or there's so much that we're not getting, um, in a, in a truthful manner, you know, there's so much lying, there's so much, um, and I think part of our narrative, you know, I think it, it, it mirrors our narrative in the sense that for many of us, um, the last 20 some years have been in theory anyway, have been about reconciliation, have Mm. been about 
you know, um, bridges have been about finding each other. Um, but I think we've, many of us are realizing that, you know, we've been had, um, or we've been lying to ourselves because we, you know, we can't kind of suspend the responsibility. Um, you know, that the politicians lied because we, we are not the country that we thought we were. And I think at, at places like Imbaula, where, you know, there's just so much raw truth. It's, it's an antidote to all of that. It's an antidote to spin. It's an antidote to, um, uh, hyperbole. It's just unadult, unadult, that word. Greg's <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm just like, don't look yeah. at me. How, how do you create, create yeah. the sort of space, that sort of empathetic space for people to come and share these truths and these stories? Because it's not just a given that, you're going to step up on stage and sort of be honest and share. I think one of the key things that I've seen about Imbula is that it does really create this sort of sympathetic, empathetic space. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because when I think of maybe like a an upcoming or amateur comedy night or stuff, you, sometimes the, the crowd can be quite nasty yeah. and booing. And but I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Well, you were saying before people are often rooting for you. Yes, because Why? they can they can see themselves in the, in 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 that person. They can see their uncle in that story. They can see their grandmother. You know, it's, it's, uh, that, I think the part of the sense is that that could be me up there, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so the stories are not alien. The stories resonate. No matter how personally they are to the person on stage, they'll, they'll resonate with at least one person, you know, in the crowd. We, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, especially the untold stories in South Africa are all our stories. You know, if we, if we think of stories of, you know, of hurt, death, disease, um, neglect, you know, the whole ambit, we, we can all relate to that. We've, we've all got families, big and small, and we can, we can place a lot of stories in our own life histories. We, or we, we can locate it rather mm. within our own life history. So, um, and I, I think that's why it's, um, it's an encouraging, it's an empathetic environment. I think at a, at a comedy show, it's almost expected for, you know, the crowd to be rude. Yeah. Certainly the people on stage are expected to be rude in a funny way, but, um, so it's a different space. And I think, the, the, it's also we have a core group of regulars, mm. so and I think they, their spirit, I would say, regulates mm. the place. You know, um, in it, so even new people to the concept um, come there and they don't know what to expect. Maybe they might have listened to one or two stories mm. online, mm. but they, you can't really get a sense of of it unless you you are actually there. And it it kind of just the the energy. You know, regulates the the space, and and you know, if there were to be people who are out of order, as it were, I think you know they would they would be policed by the by the environment. That's incredible. Mm. Um, just before we play our next story, Greg, I'd like to come to you quickly. Um, you when you were preparing for this, found an interesting sort of was it a podcast or a show that uh, was measuring the? It's 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 a podcast called Story Corps. I'm not sure if you've heard mm. it. It's sort of this um, oral history project that's based in the US and it's been going for about ten years. And they've got a huge sort of collection of these oral sort of oral history, but little sort of stories that they've gone around the country recording. And one of the things I found interesting with them is that they sort of they've worked really hard on this project because they believe you know sort of like we're talking about that sort of oral history and speaking to people builds connections. It helps mm. helps. Um, us get over our troubles and build a sort of sense of community. And I think they even, I've got this, some stats here. They went and did these, um, sort of surveys with their, with their listeners to, I guess, probably get funding, but also show their effectiveness. And so sort of some of the stats are, I think 95% of listeners said it, uh, increased their understanding of immigrants. Wow. Um, 81% of listeners said it reminded them of their shared humanity. 
um, 70% that it made them feel more positive about society. So there's all these sort of stats that are really incredible on, on the power, at least from this project, of sort of sharing these stories. I think that's such a nice counter because sometimes when you talk about storytelling and sharing, it sounds it sounds so airy fairy like okay, you guys are going to overcome our national hurdles through telling stories. So it's I like the idea that there's some research somewhere where people have said you know what there's something here. Yeah, I think I mean that that's great for me yeah. to hear. And part of what I was saying later about expansion, as far as Mbaula is concerned, is to look at that. You know, what is the, the the learning strategy there? What what can we you know, what can we deduce from what we've been doing for the last two years? On the one hand, you know, how do we improve the concept? Mm. How do we, um, you know, make sure that the show keeps getting better and so on? But on the other hand, what is the impact? You know, and how do you, you know, it'd be interesting to see their methodology and so on because, mm. you know, I think that's part of the next step uh, where we kind of look at this from a scientific point of view and say, you know, what what kind of impact are we having um if if any you know is this just kind of feel good couple of hours every month or is it having a real tangible impact and part of the other bits around you know improving the concept and amplification is mm. um distribution you know how how much wider can we distribute these stories um you know to tomorrow for example we we will be shooting. Um, I mean, we shoot every event and we put some of the stories on YouTube. But I think tomorrow we're going to be shooting for a pilot, for a television pilot. Um, and we're going to be shopping to to a few channels. So we're partnering up with Diprente, Kachisoledige's um, company. And they're going to be shooting tomorrow. And then we'll see. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, I think it, it needs, um, I think as, if storytelling can reach as many people as possible, then we will we'll be very happy. Um, but there, there are other ways. I mean, you know, we, we obviously have, um, from the beginning, we've had this partnership with the Quafix Foundation, with works, with, uh, which works with, um, with kids from, from Netherlands and Soweto. And they, you know, they help them with tutoring, you know, life skills, uh, we do career workshops for them and so on. And a big pillar that they, so they, they, they focus as English, mm. maths and science and a big pillar around, you know, in, in kind of learning uh, in language skills is literacy. So there's a big reading drive. Um, they have spelling bees and they kind of compete with each other and so on. So, you know, that's kind of the connection with Mbaula and our, you know, our encouragement of literacy. Um, we have a challenge there in kind of amplifying that as well. You know, how do we take that, um, that uh, spiritual, mm-hmm. if you will, connection with literacy and make it a practical connection with books and reading and stories. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's um for us, there's um you know, in terms of growth, there's still a lot to do. Okay. And on that note, we're going to jump into another story. It's by Ponzo Pilani, um, previously of the Daily Vox, currently at Melon Guardian. Um, and she speaks about, um, I think she had a column on this called Dating While Feminist and how it should be classified as an extreme sport. So we're just about to jump into that. Just want to find the right place on Good it. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Oh my gosh. Okay. I was what he's been waiting for. Oh, yeah. And I was really excited. Uh, I mean, I, I hadn't been dating for like almost a year now and it was very, it was, it was nice that this guy is saying that he's been saving himself for me for the past uh, four years. I knew he'd be dating, but like to, to, 
like the idea that he still thinks of me in that way four years later was very intriguing to me. And so I went out on a date with him, and a few dates later, we started officially dating. And he introduced me to his family, his friends, and even like people he worked with. Uh, he called me his sweetheart. He never called me by my real name, you know. Every time he introduced me, it would be, oh, this is my sweetheart, this is the love of my life, and all that jazz. And man, I fell for it. And then... One evening in March, um, I was still a student at Vits, and um, I lived at I lived across the street from Vits uh, on Bertha Street, and I had been studying in the library till about half past eleven, and I started to to go back to my place. I was with a friend of mine who lived on the same street but just lower. Um, so when we left campus, we were very hungry, and I didn't want to have noodles, so we decided to go to the McDonald's in Brum. That day was, it was rainy and it was cloudy and for the very first time, in a very long time, hadn't lived in Bram, it was empty. You know, like the streets were empty. There, were, there was nobody there. Even the security guards on the different corners were not there. So we got to McDonald's and I was a bit anxious. So I suffer from anxiety and I just had this heavy burden that something wrong is going to happen. And so instead of just grabbing takeaways, we decided to sit down. And she thought maybe because, you know, sometimes you, when you're hungry, you think the whole world is wrong. So she's just like, eat, eat, yeah, you'll be fine after this, then we'll walk home. And I was still a bit anxious, but then we left because we have to leave eventually. And when I got to the corner of the street where we part ways, I told her to run. So my best friend, she's like, she's a size 28, man, like, Slender never gets tired, you know, type of vibe. And, yeah. So I, I always tell her, run. If ever somebody was, was to steal you, it would be so easy, you know, because you're so tiny. And so we part ways, and she tells me to run. You know, remember, I'm a runner. So I don't run, but I'm walking really fast. I'm power walking. And a red car with tinted windows uh, comes like is passing on Bertha Street, sort of it's going up to Mandela Bridge, right? And then it reverses when it sees me in the other street, just between um, Pick and Pay and that new res, Noswell Res. Forgot the street name. And so it reverses and then it drives in my direction. I knew I had to run, so I turn back and I run. But these, this, it's a car, so they catch up with me just when I'm um, trying to. If you're a brown person, you know where Mickey's is, right? So Mickey's was still happening. It was like half past 12. Mickey's was still happening. So when this car was like running after me, I decided that the safest place was to go to that street by Mickey's and I'll be safe. But uh, these guys got to me before I got there and they tried to drag me into the car. Um, I tried to fight them back. And so it was three guys in the car. Two of them came out and they were trying to drag me into the car. And... I couldn't even like shout, but I was like, I couldn't move. I just stood there and I was like, I'm not going anywhere. And then in my very posh accent, I'm like, wait, what are you doing? What do you want? Like, literally, that's what I did. I was like, what do you want? What do you want? Uh, open my bag. I'm like, there's no laptop in here. I have a phone. I just had like the latest Samsung at that time. 
And I was like, I just have my phone. You can have it. I'm useless. There's nothing you can do with me. Leave me alone. Look at me. What are you going to do? Just take my bag and take my phone. I took out my wallet and I showed them that there's no money in my wallet. So the guy on my right hesitated while the guy on my left still tried to drag me. Mind you, because I'm so paranoid, I always carry a taser in my bag. But with knives to my face, I couldn't bring myself to using that taser. So in that moment of hesitation, while the guy who's driving the car is shouting at them for not grabbing me quick enough, I ran. I ran so hard, I ran into the door of the building I lived in. It startled the security guards, and they came out, and they just said, what is wrong? You know? And I just started crying, because I just realized that I almost just got kidnapped. So for the next four days, I could not sleep. My best friend came to stay with me. I could not sleep with the lights off, and I had to be given medication, and I did the trauma counseling and everything else that was needed to help me through this time. After four days, I decided that I need to see Brother Fine because he was worried about me after all. Uh, he came to see me. I told him that I still need my space and I'm not ready like, to talk to him and everything about what happened. And then a week after that, he decided that he's going to surprise me with the dinner date. So we go out for dinner and on our way there, I tell him that I'm not comfortable. I, can we just grab takeaways and go to his place or go to my place and just have dinner there. I don't want to be out in public. He agrees. So while we're waiting for the order at the restaurant, he comes from behind and grabs me. And I freaked out. Um, Started shouting, I was shaking, and he was like, we caused the scene, and he then took me to the car. And I was like, don't do that. How could you do that after like what happened to me a week ago? Are you crazy? And I'm just like lashing out because I stopped going to trauma counseling because I just didn't think it was working. And all I was taking was my anxiety medication. And then we get to the parking of my building. And he says, it's not like you got raped. Unfortunately, I had to stop it there. Remember, if you want to listen to the rest, left you on a bit of a cliffhanger. You can go to adnotedmanzade on Twitter. I've shared their Facebook page also, and there's links to SoundCloud where you can find all the stories and, and actually, you know, finish and hear where, where all this ends. Spiro, before you let you go, we're having one of these events tomorrow. Tell us what we can expect. Yes, yeah, so from 7 tomorrow at the baseline, um, we have uh, another great lineup. So we have uh, two writers, uh, Kutato and um, Gilesitze. And then we've got uh, Sunshine Shibambo, who's uh, quite a well-known entrepreneur and ex-stylist. And then our headline is Lebohangras Taba, um, the filmmaker. He's just Fantastic recently... Um, completed a, a documentary for MTV for, um, on, on race, uh, called the, um, the people versus the rainbow nation. Really excellent film. So, you know, he's got a story about how it, it, it's, uh, it's going to be a sprawling story. It's going to take us from, you know, Joburg to China wow. and back. Um, it's going to be quite interesting. So tomorrow, seven, seven thirty at the baseline, 50 rand at the door and all, all, all proceeds go to the Quafix Foundation. And you can check out the work that they do at, uh, Quafix forward slash foundation. And, um, yeah, we're looking forward to, to another great storytelling evening. 
Fantastic. Spirit, thank you so much for joining us. Greg, as always, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. Man, thank you for having me. All right. Remember, join us on Twitter at DM Shows that day. Download the podcast, share it far and wide. We'll see you next week, same time. The Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com.